Hi, I'm BJ, and this is the Arcane Alienist Podcast. Hey everybody, uh, for today's show, I've got a recap of my latest homebrew Old School Essentials campaign in the mythic world of Erd. Uh, and I've got a little bit of a lore that goes along with that session recap about we're starting to get into the underworld element of the, of the setting. Um, and then we've got some calls from Carl Rodriguez. Uh, one of the about, about Pathfinder and another we're going to revisit the way we do uh, treasure and experience points for retainers when you're playing old school essentials, both the standard way and this, or, you know, we're going to, go back over the stuff that I went over last time from the second edition of Carcass Crawler, the, the, uh, the official old school essential zine. So that's what we've got coming up. So here we go. Right after I'd put this episode together and had it ready to publish, uh, I got a call from Jason Connerly. So uh, there'll also be a call from Jason about our previous discussion of um, character backstory from, from, a, from, from uh, my previous episodes. So, uh, that'll be in with the calls. I'm going to stick that quick note in here, and then now we'll get back to the uh, to the show. So just wrapped up my latest Old School Essentials uh, campaign in the Mythic World of Erd. I didn't wrap up the campaign. I wrapped up the most recent session. Pardon me. Uh, again, this is my sort of reskinning and retelling of the Keep on the Borderlands set in my homebrew setting. So we've altered the lore a little bit, and I've changed up some of the monsters and, and their their, uh, their their kind of place in the world, the place in the setting, and, and added a few things here or there. When we left off, the the group had cleared out uh, the the layer of the knolls. Uh, and had found a secret passage um, leading out uh, and into a tunnel. Uh, and they were pretty banged up. They knew that there were a possibility that some more gnolls would come back because there are gnolls out in the woods, in the wilderness surrounding the, the, the caverns that they've been exploring. So they kind of uh, went in and, and barricaded the secret door and decided to take a, take a risk to rest up. And I, I rolled for some random encounters and then they were able to, Heal, heal their wounds and then take another rest again and get their spell slots back and start off fresh. Um, and since they were in there for so long, I ruled that they kind of poked around and naturally found that this, this tunnel dead ends in another. Um, but because they were in there so long, they could obviously figure out there's another secret door. Uh, because the knoll that, that they had, the last knoll they had dealt with had previously said there's a passageway to the, to the temple of this cult that we've been in the service of. So it was pretty obvious it was there, so they just found it. Uh, so they come out into a storeroom. There's really nothing in the storeroom. They start looking around. It's a big room. It's got lots of crates. There's really nothing of value. It's just ordinary sundry supplies. Uh, but then one of them notices a skeleton in the hallway. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a open doorway in, leading into a hall. Um, and while they're poking around, one of them notices there's a skeleton standing there all of a sudden. But it's not really doing anything. It's just kind of standing there. It doesn't even act like it's um, noticed them. But it is slowly inching towards them. And so uh, we rolled for surprise as a proxy for kind of a perception check. Um, and uh, 
some of them were surprised. We rolled for initiative. First person to uh, to, to to win the initiative, Harold shoots at it with a, a an arrow, and it doesn't hit the skeleton. It's kind of they hear this kind of wet uh, splat, and th- then they realize this isn't a skeleton. It's a gelatinous cube with a skeleton suspended in it. So the gelatinous cube comes creeping forward in through the the doorway. Uh, a couple of the warriors run up to to attack it. Other people are pelting it with uh, with uh, you know, crossbow bolts and sling bullets, and it got in a few attacks as they exchanged. Uh, you know, we, we went through a few rounds of combat, but it missed. Fortunately, both times the, the two our two frontline warriors, Roderick the Paladin and Dolly the Dwarf, have got pretty good armor armor at this point, armor and shields, so they they can stand up there and not not get hit too often. Uh, and so they were able to defeat the the gelatinous cube, and it sort of hit zero hit points and quivered a little bit and then uh, lost its its shape and was just this pile of goo on the ground. Uh, and they found some loose coins in there as well as a, a, a wand of, I believe it was a wand of enemy detection uh, that Celestina the wizard kind of picked up and has held on to. They go um, further to explore the hall in the, this, the cavern. There's kind of a winding hallway they find a side passage with a door that has been barred from from the outside, from their side of the door. Um, one character, um, Jedi the elf, unbars the door, looks in, and is like, "Nope." There's a bunch of coffins and sarcophagi, and they're like, "We'll we'll come back here later. Let's let's rebar the door. Someone has probably barred this for a reason." So they kind of put put it put it made a note to come back to that room later. They they continue to wind through these sort of these corridors. It's becoming more apparent that this is some kind of worked stone and not just a, a, a cavern tunnel. Um, and they find an intersection, and now there are torches in sconces on the wall, so so it's lit up. Uh, they can go straight ahead. They can go to the left, to the right. Straight ahead, they find some stairway, some stairs going down, f- further down, um, with a door, and uh, they decide. To uh, to use some uh, a hammer and some spikes to, uh, to spike the door closed so nothing can come in on them. Uh, Harold and, and uh, Hedemar, the cleric, take care of that. Uh, the passageway to the left doesn't have any any um, torches. The uh, Celestina, the the wizard uh, magic user, and her retainer walked down it a little bit with a torch and saw that it kept going and decided to go back, not not go down this dark tunnel alone. The group, and then the passageway to the north, they can tell that they that there's some at the end of it. There's some some steps going down, and there's a more glowing ember like like maybe there's a fire going on in the, in, the, in, a, in a room. But they've got to got to go down some steps to get into it, so they can't exactly see into the room from all the way up the end of the, the hallway. As they make their way down their hallway, they find another room with the door. They they open the door. It's this very nicely decorated. Uh, bedroom with a bed and uh, you know a table and chairs and some candles on the table but there's nobody in there and there's really nothing of value but it's been set up as a nice um, a nice place a, a nice bed chamber so they they continue to press forward towards the glowing light and what they notice in there there's a, there's a man in there it's a torture chamber there's racks and there's cages and there's a table full of torture implements and the, there's a fire pit in the middle of the room uh, again, we roll for surprise. The, the, the torturer 
Uh, he's a big, strong guy, but he surprised most of the party member. A couple of them are surprised, but the rest of them aren't. We roll for initiative, uh, and they're, they're able to kind of get in the room with him. But he was really tough. He had a lot of hit points, and he had two attacks, so he lasted longer, even though, again, the warrior types were able to get up on him really quick, and we were the the others were able to get off a round of, uh, of arrow and, and missile fire on him. So he took he took a lot of damage, but it took a lot to get him to go down, and he did manage to to get in a couple of solid hits on Dolly the dwarf. Um, again, for the number of times he tried to hit her, um, he did pretty good. He couldn't hit Roderick with his second attack, the paladin. He's got the, an AC of negative one at this point. Um, but so they take that guy out, uh, and uh, they're left to uh, to explore this final door that they, they don't want to go back and explore the barred door yet so they're going to go back and explore the uh the the darkened tunnel they get all the way down there and there's a a door this looks more like a cell door it's an iron door it's it again it's barred from the outside there's a little window with you know the the vertical bars in it so no one can reach through it and so Hedemar Kane who's a cleric because of the positioning his retainer actually was in fr- the front of the party just by the way they had moved and so he had his retainer, uh, Volker, who had a torch, look in there and see what they could see. And there's a woman uh, tied to a chair. She's, she, she's got her head down. She's looking at the floor. She says, who's there? And he, he says, well, I'm, you know, I'm an adventurer who's made my way through here. Who are you? And she says, um, you know, can you let, you know, let me out, please. And uh, I can't remember all the words are exchanged, but, but but he cautiously opens the door and she's tied to the chair. Her arms are bound to the, the arms of the chair. And he, um, he goes up to, uh, she, she's got a hood over her head. He, he, he goes up to approach her and he catches a glimpse of her face. And I didn't, I, I said, I didn't tell anybody else what was happening. I just said, I'm not going to explain what happens because this is a retainer. <laughs> In the party, he's not really a full PC, so I'm just going to tell you your retainer needs to roll a saving throw for paralysis petrification. He rolled, he saved, and I said, well, he's effectively out of the encounter for the time being. Um, there was one character who could kind of see in the room. couldn't see the woman, but could see him through, tor- through from torchlight and sees him pause and freeze, but can't really tell what's happened to him. Um, and that is... Jedi, the elf, who's kind of a psionicist, he slips in the room to try to help and looks at her and passes his save and is able to call out Medusa. And so the other party members then try to get into the room, but they're looking at the floor as they go in to not look at her. But she's tied to a chair. And she says, I will I will release your friend from the, this petrification if you cut me loose. So there's kind of a standoff and a negotiation, and then they realize, you know, she's not really hostile. She, she's a captive of the cult that has been sort of behind everything that they've been dealing with, with, with all these other factions over the course of the, the campaign. Uh, she says, I need to get back to my people, and they realize that her name is... Um, Legea, and she is the kobold queen. She's not a kobold, but she is their queen. They had made some of the kobolds had earlier made reference to their queen could turn ability to stone, and then she had been forced to turn this orc orc uh, chieftain into a into, into a statue. 
um, before they brought brought her back here. But this is her home, her this this temple complex that that is adjacent to these caves they're in right now. These these tunnels are in now is an ancient underworld temple, uh, but that she and the Cobalts have made their home. They didn't create it. It was old when they took up residence there. Uh, but this cult had come in along with their their goblinoid allies and captured her, enslaved her people. And she doesn't know what's been going on in the service. She just knows that they've pressed her, her people in the service and they've been keeping her in this room, pumping her for information about the under, underworld passages that lead out of this temple and where they go. To what end, she doesn't know. Um, but it's, it's clear she's not hostile. She just wants to reunite with her subjects and kind of reclaim her home. Um, and she had initially thought that this was a trick by the cultists and that, that uh, Volker was one of them. So she had, you know, panicked and turned him to stone. But then when she realized all these other people were out there and what was going on, she she's able to reverse. And that is not a standard ability of Medusa in old school essentials, but I thought it would be fun to give 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 them that ability that ability if they can, if they want to, re- reverse the the effect, um, probably because that's food for them. You know, they're, they're going to petrify you and then save you for later. <laughs> um, but any, anyway, uh, so but she's effectively become an ally of the party now because she wants to some payback on this cult and. Uh, um, and to, to put things back the way they were and get, get her cobalts on. They say, well, the cobalts are, are, you know, here's what's happened to your, your cobalts in the meantime. We, we've befriended them. They, they've been helping us. Um, and so uh, that's, that's, that's sort of where we, re- we started to wrap up for the evening. So uh, we, we, I put them back where they went back to the doorway, the stairs going down. She has indicated, okay, on the other side of this, there's the, the temple. This is this ancient temple um, that we live in as well as there's a passage to the surface and there's a passage farther into the underworld uh, that, that they've been asking me about. And she had told them about it, but she doesn't hadn't been able to tell them where it goes or anything like that. Uh, so there's still some things for them to sort of figure out anyway. But where we left is as they go down the stair and reapproach the door, I said, everybody feels this weird feeling like something is off something is not right you know you're not really weakened or nauseated or 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 you'll feel bad it's just this this feeling kind of in the pit of your stomach or or going up and down your spine that something is not right um and then dolly the dwarf says we've we've just crossed into the underworld so and i will i'm going to do a little segment here on what the underworld means in the mythic world of erd uh, to kind of flesh that out. But that was how the uh, the session went. That um, had a lot of fun. So we're, we're nearing the end of Keep on the Borderlands, but I've got some more expanded content to keep the thing going because well, there's some dangling plots to resolve, even even with this cult beyond just cleaning them out of the, the, the temple so the kobolds can come home. So here's a little bit of combined underworld lore for the mythic world of Erd. Uh, as I've described before, the, the underworld is sort of my blend of, it's kind of the underdark, but it's also a little bit maybe of the shadow fell. It's more the mythic, not the mythic underworld necessarily that we talk about in gaming. 
um, but more of the mythological underworld of sort of ancient near Near Eastern mythology and Mediterranean mythology. It's 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 the idea that in the, that you know, like Hades used to be a place that you could physically travel to if you could find your way. That's what we're talking about here. It's not just a it's not just the caves immediately that, that go into the earth, but when, if you go far enough, you cross into a another realm with its own logic and its own rules, which I guess that is sort of the mythic underworld that we talk about in D&D. &D. Uh, but things from the surface aren't supposed to be here, and things that dwell here are not supposed to go to the surface. And that's where I describe that queasy, uneasy feeling to my players that they know as they cross into the underworld that they're not supposed to be there. And that may just be a descriptive thing. There's no, there's, you know, if they stay long enough, I might come up with some kind of consequences, but they're not going to be there that long. It's just that they know that this is not our place and we probably shouldn't stay here longer than we have to. Which is also part of the reason the kobolds are so miserable up on the surface because they're underworld creatures and they're not supposed to be up there. Even in the, the mines they're working in, with, they've been working in, uh, those are sort of surface level mines that, that they, they took over from dwarves initially. So um, they don't like being there. They want to come back to be in the underworld where they feel settled and like this is our place in the and, and where we're supposed to be. Um, and so and so that and so kobolds are are, are, are an underworld creature. Um, they're not inherently evil, but they're not really moral in the sense of of good, evil, right, and wrong that that we would think of. Uh, so this, this, they're neutral. They're not they're not chaotic. They're not lawful in the classic D&D sense, but, but they are, I would say they're probably neutral to lawful neutral if we were going to use the nine-point alignment, but they're just neutral for the purposes of alignment in old-school essentials. Uh, as is this Medusa that, the, that they've encountered. The Medusa is also an underworld creature. I know in some versions of D&D, it's, it's more of a surface, even, even a fae-type creature. I felt like I wanted to place when I was sort of designing and trying to think of where do all the monsters in classic BX fit and sort of the, the the setup I've made in the mythic world of Erd, and I felt like they would be much more of a chthonic underworld creature, you know, hearkening back to the Medusas and the Gorgons of um, of Greek mythology. Uh, and so placing them in the underworld. There's also a very common theme among underworld creatures of turning turning people to stone in, in those classic D&D monsters. So um, there's a lot of things that turn people to stone. Uh, so I, I, you know, she, she's there is, is the, the kobolds have, have sort of propped her up as a queen and she kind of looks after them because kobolds are, you know, not stupid, but they're not the most sophisticated people, people in, in, in the, in the, in the mythic world. <laughs> so she kind of shepherds them, looks out for them, takes care of them. And they, they're very loyal and they, 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 they like her. And of course she doesn't turn them to stone. Um, she has a mask, you know, that she wears to, to, uh, to, so she doesn't just automatically turn people to stone that look at her. Um, and as I mentioned in the, in the previous segment, I've also decided that, that Medusas would have this ability to unpetrify their victims, um, if, if they choose to. Um, so that makes them very good at using that as a bargaining chip, you know. So I can petrify you, I can unpetrify you, I can, I can blackmail you into doing something for me because I've now frozen your friend and I need you to to uh, complete some tasks for me in order to, to set them free. Um, I didn't do that in this particular case, but that was the idea of how they might survive as, as creatures in the, the underworld is, is 
you know, a, a small, a single or a small group of Medusa may be able to seize power over weaker creatures through those means. Um, or maybe just simply, you know, their strength in numbers and she's, she's joined this, this band of kobolds. Uh, but that's the kind of thing I'm thinking of the Underdark is these are freakish, weird monsters that, that, that pe- even in a fantasy world like D&D that people from the surface are going to look at and their skin's going to crawl or turn to stone. <laughs> uh, and so we've seen the kobolds as one example of it. Um, and now we've seen a Medusa as another example of it. And, and maybe we'll see some more encounters as, as, as they move forward there because they're going to have an opportunity, I think, to look a little more into the Underdark or the, the Underworld. Sorry falling back into old, old language there um, as they kind of wrap up things with this particular initial campaign in the mythic world of Erd. So there's a little bit more lore on the underworld, a little bit more lore on kobolds, and and now we've introduced the Medusa into the mix. Um, anyway, so uh, that's that's a little bit of a lore dump there along with the, the session recap I just provided. So uh, if you have any thoughts on that, any questions, any suggestions, any reactions, please. Let me know what you think. Maybe I should ask Joe on his show, but why does he think that it's going to give people another reason to hate Pathfinder too? I, I guess I don't understand the negativity towards the game. It's a pretty good game. It's a, it definitely takes some skill and player, you know, in both uh, building your character and also in play, like you've mentioned a lot. And I see that conditions are a, a big thing, uh, which maybe. In contrast to 5e, there's like, you know, two columns of conditions, whereas in Pathfinder 2e, much like in the Pathfinder 1 tradition, there's a condition, there's a lot of conditions, and you need to move these definitions, right? And the adversaries, they kind of, that's kind of their their main thing, right? So a, a condition, uh, just take the ghoul, for example, that, you know, paralyzes you or diseases you when it, it strikes or bites you, right? That's a condition, and... Uh, they're very prevalent in Pathfinder 2. Hi, Carl. Um, I think, uh, well, one, I think Joe's just kidding about him personally making people hate Pathfinder 2E more. Uh, yeah, I don't know that people hate Pathfinder 2E. I've never heard anybody say they hate it. Um, I know it's not as dominant in the... Uh, in sales as maybe that Paizo had hoped, particularly considering how successful Pathfinder one was. But, um, I, that's my understanding and why I don't haven't really followed it that closely, but, uh, I mean, it seems to be successful. They're still producing it. I, you know, outside of people who pick an edition and then descend into edition wars over different versions of D and D and Pathfinder. I really haven't heard anybody else say they hate Pathfinder two. Uh, maybe just that they prefer 5e or that they prefer uh, Pathfinder 1 over Pathfinder 2. I know Cody from Taking 20 did a video about why he was quitting Pathfinder 2. And it had to do with uh, what he called the illusion of choice. That for all the options in Pathfinder, once you gain some system master, Pathfinder 2, once you gain some system mastery, uh you tend to just kind of have the same couple of things you have your characters do over and over again, and there's no things don't vary it up. I, I haven't experienced that in either of the games I'm playing in, so maybe. But uh, I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. I can see where that could happen, where where players would just spam the same one or two 
things over and over again. I mean, I kind of do that sometimes. Dr. Eleazar, he just zaps everything with an electric arc, but I try to mix it up. Um, but to me, because of conditions being so important to solving encounters, and you can't just use the same strategy against every foe you face, I don't see how we're using the same same things over and over again any more than you would in any version of D&D. I mean, certainly we all have our things we've specialized our characters in, so of course those are going to be our go-to solutions, barring anything else that seems apparent or obvious that we should do differently. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, Joe, let us know what you mean by Pathfinder 2.8. Were you just being a, making a sarcastic comment, or is there something more to that? Because so far, I think Carl and I are both really enjoying it, and the, the, the people we're playing with are enjoying it. So let us know what you're talking about. Hey, BJ, I wonder if Gavin Norman is now mining the zeitgeist for a bunch of house rules because the way he's suggesting 8 XP for henchmen is kind of the way Hobbs did, had done it. That old Hobbs guy has done it in Kalmata and something I did in Broken Lands. And I think what I did... I. Because, oh man, it's, it, it is honestly frustrating that you fight a tough monster, set of monsters and it's worth like 5 XP um, for the whole group. So what I had done, and based on what Hobbs had been doing in Kalmata, and I did this for Broken Lands, I just do a 100 XP per level for survival. Doesn't matter how many monsters you face, a lot or a bunch. And that would go to like any henchmen that were there with the group. And then uh, they would take the treasure and divide it uh, as the character saw fit and what kind of share they wanted to give the henchman and the henchman could get more or less and I know when um, um, Grillmeister ran sorry when Grill Wizard was uh, running his group in Broken Lands he would even give like more XP uh, so that he could get his henchmen and hirelings up faster could give him more treasure XP because you know like kind of a uh, bonus, I guess, and they get XP for their bonus and how they performed, which is, I thought, kind of neat uh, to do. Broken Lands is a fantastic game. I hope we could bring it back one of these days. Uh, I know a big proponent and a big fan was Colin Green of Spike Pit. Uh, he had a, he and Darren, his brother, had a really cool group. Uh, they were the, uh, uh, it was like kind of gang lords of Acris or something like that. Um, which is kind of fun, kind of like uh, Gangs of New York. Uh, but uh, these guys were uh, uh, Tannehill's, uh, Tannehill's Terrors was uh, the name of their gang, so it was pretty cool. Hey, Carl, yeah, those, those, those sound like some fun games, and I I'm always, would always be down to play with, uh, with any of those guys in any of those, those game systems. Um, yeah, I think I think Gavin Norman is getting into the zeitgeist. He's looking at some popular house rules that, that, that old school players use or that have been suggested by similar systems and coming up with his own variants of them, which is great. I, I think he's doing a stellar job with it. Um, not to be too much of a fanboy of, of Gavin Norman, but but I really like his, the way he does things. Um, I thought I would let's let's review the retainers rules just in a little more detail because I just skimmed those ones from Carcass Crawler number two last episode. So let's let's do a little more of a, a dive into it. The standard rule for retainers, coming right out of old school essentials classic fantasy, which is identical to what you would use using the, the old BX D and D system. Uh, retainers can be of any class, including normal zero level humans, uh, but they must be of equal or lower level to the hiring PC. 
uh, the referee should determine the rate of pay desired by potential retainers taking into account factors such as their skill level. So more experienced retainers may want a higher rate of pay where those employed for unskilled tasks will have lower demands. And competition. Retainers may accept lower rates of pay if there aren't many opportunities. They may, may want higher rates of pay if, um, if there's a, I'm sorry, they, they don't want higher rates of pay if there's competition, if there's not much competition for the job. But if, if you're a successful adventurer, I guess, and you're hiring a retainer and you've got several applicants, people may be willing to work a little cheaper, um, you know, to, to, to get in, get in with the group. This is a standard rate. Retainers will usually want a guaranteed fee, which is a pay per day of adventure, plus a share of the treasure recovered, at least half a share. For example, a fee of one gold piece a day plus half a share for treasure. And that's kind of the default I've used. They want a gold piece a day and half a share of treasure. And so how we handle that in parties with retainers is that uh, player characters get two shares rather than asking what's half a share. I just say same difference. The PCs get two shares and the retainers get one share. Um, it, it, just the math for me is easier to calculate that way. So you, you, you divide the, the amount of loot by a number equal to two times the number of PCs plus one times the number of, of retainers. And there's your shares. Each PC gets two. Each retainer gets one. Uh, hiring PC must also pay for the retainer's daily upkeep, food and lodging, and uh, new adventuring gear and weapons. If the party decides that they want to be mounted, they have to provide a mount for the retainer. And so that's that's his um, rule on hiring retainers. There are more rules about uh, loyalty and things like that, loyalty, loyalty checks. Um, but that that's part of what he's in Carcass Crawler 2 with this op optional system doing. It also notes here in the standard rules for experience for retainers, they're played by the referee. They acquire experience the same way a PC do and can advance in level and are affected by all the same class rules as PCs. But because retainers follow instructions when on an adventure, thus not directly engage them in problem solving, their XP is penalized by minus 50%. Uh, when a normal human, i.e. a retainer of level zero with no character class, gains XP, they choose an adventuring class. Um, so, uh, that's, that's how the, uh, the standard rules work. Now, what he's done with the sidebar that I mentioned in Carcass Crawler 2, let me, let me, instead of just skimming over, let me, let me go through it in detail. The standard rules for awarding XP state that XP earned in an adventure is divided evenly among all surviving characters, including retainers, who then suffer a minus 50% penalty to XP earned as they are only following instructions. Division of treasure is agreed by the party and does not influence the amount of XP a character gains. So what that means is, in the standard rules, a retainer only gets 50% of the treasure uh, and loot that a standard PC gets, but they get a full chunk of XP from all the XP to be divided. So, so if the party pulls in... 100 gold pieces, that's 100 experience points to divide among evenly among the party members, and the retainer gets a complete full share of that. But they're only going to get half of the gold 
because they're getting ha a half a share of the actual loot in terms of the gold that goes into their pocket. Um, some groups prefer, he says here, the division of XP to directly match the division of treasure as follows. Uh, the manner in which treasure is divided is the party's decision, usually greeting, agreeing before the adventure. Retainers are typically awarded a flat fee for day of work and possibly a fractional share of the treasure. Uh, division of XP. Each character earns XP equal to the gold piece value of the treasure they are awarded by the party. XP not earned due to treasure, IG, so for monsters defeated, is then divided evenly among party members. If using this optional, retainers do not suffer any penalty to XP earned, but typically learn less XP than the PCs they are awarded uh, as they are awarded a smaller share of treasure. So, for example, a party recovers 1,400 gold pieces worth of treasure and is awarded 400 XP for defeating a monster. The surviving members, which are three PCs and one retainer, agree to divide the treasure as follows. PCs gave a full share of 400, the retainer gains a half share of 200. Each PC thus gains 400 XP and the retainer gets 200 XP. The XP from defeating the monster is then evenly divided among them for, for 100 each. So, so the retainer will get 100, just, just like the, the PCs do. So therefore, I guess ultimately each PC is going to get 500 and the retainer is going to get 300. Um, so that would be a way of, uh, and as you mentioned, Carl, in, in the message, you could decide to boost up your retainers a little bit by simply, um, by, by simply uh, giving them bonus shares of treasure to uh, to get them to level up faster. There's a little metagaming way of doing it, but it's kind of hard to play old school essentials without metagaming anyway. So um, I actually. Now that on second pass, you know, I mentioned there are a few things in this carcass crawler too that I really like that I'll probably put into use as soon as I can. I may start this right away. That is just a lot easier than um, than what I, what we've been doing in terms of calculating XP and treasure division separately. You know, um, so I'm glad your call prompted me to take a second look at that. So. Um, but yeah, I think I think yeah, you're right. I mean, there there are lots of different ideas floating around out there on the internet from publishers and on Discord and into people's different podcasts and YouTube videos. So uh, you can't blame Gavin for incorporating a good idea into his system. It, you know, why 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 not incorporate it just because someone else thought of it first? And he doesn't just carbon copy stuff. I mean, these are all similar ideas, but he 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 makes them his own and he changes them a little bit usually from what I've seen. But um, anyway, thank you, Carl, for the calls. I always like, uh, like hearing from you and uh, I'll talk to you later. Oh, go potty. Hey, BJ, just want to say, listen to your latest episode. As far as background stories go, I, I really don't care about, you know, somebody wants to make a long backstory. The problem is when you're starting a game, so you're all starting as first level adventurers and somebody writes a backstory where their character is doing things that don't mesh with the idea they're a first-level starting adventurer. You, you know, you're not going to have all these heroic things that happen in your past when you're a first-level starting character because if you'd done those things, you would be a, you know, fifth-level, sixth-level, eighth-level character, right? So, so I think that kind of disconnect is a problem for me. I mean, obviously... If I'm playing a game, whatever, I don't care what other people do. But, I, so I don't know, does that make sense? I've, 
Any thoughts on that from you? Hey, Jason. I, no, I understand exactly what you're talking about. Um, as a player, it doesn't bother me how simple or complex uh, another player wants to their character be as long as they're ha happy playing with it and as long as whatever choices they make don't interfere in everybody else's fun. You know, it's where, where the, so let's say their backstory doesn't require that the rest of us are just kind of sidekicks uh, to their to, to, to their main main character story the whole time, or where you know their approach to their characterization or personality or whatever it is about it. As long as it doesn't dominate and everybody gets to share the spotlight, and it really is a a group ensemble effort, you know that that barring those things, I, I people want to have a complicated backstories, simple backstories, uh, detailed backstories, sparse backstories. I don't care. And as a DM, I guess it probably kind of falls in line with what I had said in the episode on, when I talked about backstories was that I don't care if a player's backstory is simple or complicated either, as long as it fits with the campaign that we're going to run to. Although I, I do, yeah, <laughs> I, I have that feeling when, when, when someone says, uh, you know, well, I don't know if it's ever actually anybody actually do it. But if someone were to hand me this really detailed backstory, I might be, I, I would feel compelled to go, look, uh, I try to work little shout outs and Easter eggs and, and, and little bits and pieces of people's backstory into the campaign to make it feel like your character really lives in that world. But it's probably going to be little snippets of it. This whole thing, if you want to like use this as a way to, to interact with NPCs and, and tell them who you are and what you're about, that's fine. But, you know, um, it, it may not have as much bearing on the campaign as a, a lengthy backstory that you've written does. And I think also, more to your point, probably telling somebody, you know, that's a lot of stuff for a first-level character. You know, why, are you, you know, you might want to trim that back a little bit to be more reflective of you haven't really had much, much of a life of adventure so far, and this is kind of this is kind of where. And I would work with people to kind of figure out where to trim or where to slim down or. Did you experience these events, or maybe these are events you witnessed from afar, or these were like a parent or older sibling, you know, that, that you squired for, so you weren't really, you were kind of off on the sidelines observing, but, um, and they're family stories, but they're not your personal story. I don't know. I might be tempted to do something like that. Uh, I, I, more often than not, I think I've had occasion where I wanted a little bit of a backstory to start a new campaign to kind of tie people in, and, and I'll always have a player who's like, who doesn't want to give me anything? They're like, oh, I don't care. And I'm like, well, I don't want to force something on you. I don't want to make something up. Give me, give me, give me two or three sentences at least. <laughs> so just like you have the people who 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 want to want to shove a huge backstory into the campaign, you've also got people who sometimes are remiss to to do even the bare minimum. That sounds harsh to say the bare minimum. That's not really what I mean. But I think you get what I'm talking about. So yeah, I would I would not want a character to come to a first level. Start with a first level character and have this big elaborate epic history that's like, well, you should be like, you know, a hero of legend at this point, not not a not a a measly first level character just starting off on their on their first adventure, right? So yeah, I get like completely what you're saying there. So thanks for calling off the Jason. Uh, I stumbling over my words. Thank you for the call, Jason. Everybody, that was Jason Connerly of the Nerds RV RPG Variety Cast. Be sure to check out his podcast. I need to insert a quick uh, uh, follow-up to Jason's call there. Uh, we're kind of getting into the 
concept of sort of things players do sometimes that may or may not be in service of the game, be sure to check out Cerebrivore this coming Friday where we talk a little more expansively about that topic. And that episode of Cerebrivore will, will come out this coming Friday. Uh, and that will include myself, Jason, along with Carl, who you heard earlier, and Arlen Walker from the Live from Pelham's Wasteland podcast and YouTube channel. So that'll come out this coming Friday morning, July 8th, I believe that'll be. All right, thanks. Okay, that's the end of this episode. Uh, I want to thank Carl Rodriguez and Jason Connerly for their calls. Uh, Always good to hear from them. As As I said before, be sure and check out both of their respective podcasts available on Anchor and find podcatchers everywhere. Uh, and wherever you are out there, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Hope you're having a good, we're going, this, I think this will drop after the 4th of July, but we're going into the 4th of July weekend as I'm recording it. So I hope you've had a good 4th of July weekend. Happy Independence Day and uh, stay safe. Take care of yourselves out there and I'll be back with another episode later. Thanks for listening to the Arcane Alienist podcast. The music you're hearing is Come and Get It by Scott Holmes Music. The cover art I use for the episodes is by Dave Bone. Be sure and check out his website, ironseer.com, for a lot of other great gaming-related content. You can always leave me a voice message through the Anchor app or at the Anchor website, or you can email me at arcane.alienist at gmail.com. Once again, I appreciate you listening. Thanks so much.